You're listening to audio from Citizens Church, located in Plano, Texas. For more information about this ministry or to give to this ministry, please visit citizenschurch.com. Good morning. It's good to be here with you guys. Um, my name is Tamarcus Raglan. <clears throat> I'm the young adult minister here at Citizens Church. Um, and just so excited to be able to, yes, I hear those young adults representing in the 1115. Um, but yeah, I'm just excited to be here with you guys to open up God's word. And so, um, man, last week, if you weren't here, we had an amazing man of God named Dave Bruscus, and he came and did a great job of uh, opening Colossians 1 and putting on full display the preeminence um, and the supremacy of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And this morning, we want to turn our attentions to the second chapter of Ephesians to see um, the new reality that the preeminent one that we learned about last week has secured for us. And so if you're taking notes, the title of our message today is The Policy of Peace and the Prince of Peace. In the text we just read together, Paul wants to shed light on how Christ's work on the cross brings about ethnic harmony. Of course, Paul's vision of reconciliation includes more than just that, um, Christ in himself is reconciling all things in heaven and on earth in himself and bringing them together, but that certainly does include peace between people groups. In our text today, that was Jew and Gentile, and in our society today, black, white, and every shade that we find in between. Uh, One of my favorite movies of all time Uh, probably because it's one of the first ones I got to see and I remember seeing in theaters is Remember the Titans. Uh, Yes, movie movie junkies out there. Um, If you didn't know, it was based on a a true story situated in Alexandria, Virginia in 1971, just eight years after Alexander versus the Holmes County Board of Education had ruled the immediate desegregation of the school system. And so uh, before this time, they had three separate high schools. And after this policy had passed, all of the high schools came together to make one new school. And so they hired a new head coach, um, Harmon Boone, played by none other than Denzel Washington. And he is hired as the new head coach of T.C. Williams High School. And he is tasked with the job of coaching and bringing together one new football team. So you could you can only imagine my athletes in the room, right? If you were in Duncanville and Allen and Lake Highlands and Prosper and you tried to bring all of those schools together to make one team, uh, it's not a lot of starting positions on an 11-man team, right? And so just before there's a scene in the movie, just before they get ready to get on the bus to go off to training camp, Coach Boone is approached by one of the star players. He's from one of the all-white schools. His name was Gary Bertier, right? And he says, Coach Boone, I'm the only All-American you got on this team. And if you want me or anybody else to play for you, then you'll reserve half of the starting positions for the Hammond boys. That's Offense and special teams, of course. Um, Don't worry about defense. We don't need any of your players. We got that covered. 
right? Like, could you hear the pressure that he's trying to apply to the coach? Right. See, there's been this new policy that was passed that has said that the schools are desegregated. And yet the public pressure that surrounds them has continued to spur on the hostility. And so now if Coach Boone wants to develop a winning team out of these boys, he's somehow going to have to take them off to camp and get their principles to align with the new policy that has been put in place so that when they come back into their home territory and community, they could function as one new team despite the pressures around them. Family, we too live on the other side of a policy change. And that policy has determined that people who used to be estranged from one another are now one new people. And it was not a policy that was made possible by human volition, but rather it was passed by unanimous vote, three out of three, in the divine courtrooms of the Trinity. And that policy is that the gospel of the kingdom has reconciled humanity to God. And not only that, but he has reconciled humanity to one another. And that includes ethnic groups, even if those groups have hostility in their past. This is the driving force behind our message today. And before we go any further, I want to just pause to make mention two things that I recognize to be reality. First, I know that this conversation can often be filled with misunderstanding and fear and hostility. And the tendency in our cultural climate is to deal with one another in these conversations without charity. But I want to be clear from the jump, brothers and sisters, that I stand before you today in love and in peace, bearing a message that is full of love and peace. And second, I want to mention that the the tension that we are experiencing in this conversation and in our culture today, it's not new. But from the very beginning of the church When Paul was traveling around the known world, making the new policy of the gospel known to the Jews and the Gentiles, he was still met with hostility. When you get a chance, you can look back through the book of Acts and you can see how he was constantly met by opposition from all sides. But I'll demonstrate it to you in short. Before Paul sat down to pen any words in the letter to the Ephesians, he was met with two different kinds of resistance. First, you have the Ephesians who opposed Paul in his message. See, the city of Ephesus was a very prominent city in Asia Minor, known for its wealth. But as Paul began to bring the good news of the gospel and the Ephesians started to turn from their idol worship, they ceased to buy the figurines of their idol worship, and it started to hamper their bottom line. And so the Ephesian authorities, as they started to catch wind of this and they saw how the economy was being negatively affected by this new way that Paul had been bringing, they forced Paul and his, compart- and his partners out. Right? What, a, what a sinister snare it is when injustices become lucrative. 
Similarly, you have the Jews functioning under the policy of the law rather than under the new policy of grace. They also opposed Paul and his message. And as he was attempting to bridge the gap between the Jews and the Gentiles and undoing the order that they had established in their culture, one that granted them social and religious power, they too wanted to do away with Paul. In fact, they drug him out of the temple and beat him nearly half to death. Right, so you have this, this one kind of resistance represented in the Ephesians and the Jews, right, clinging to their religious power and the Ephesians clinging to their economic power. The two groups had a history of hostility that stretched back to the Old Testament, and so they both cling to the thing that they thought could control the power and preserve them. And Paul was ostracized by them both. And yet, Paul continued to lean into the tension in order that the gospel might reach both groups. But there was a second kind of pressure that Paul had to overcome in his ministry. And it came with those who traveled alongside him. And the text, it says that as they were approaching the city of Jerusalem and they heard wind that their message was not going to be well received, especially since they were found in the company of Gentiles, namely Ephesians. That when they made it to Jerusalem, there was going to be trouble that awaited them. And so those who were traveling with Paul said, don't go in, stay back. It wasn't that they were opposed to his message or to the work of the gospel, but they were afraid to enter into the tension. A couple weeks ago, um, my wife and I got to have a heart-to-heart conversation like all healthy marriages do at some point in time. Um, and it was hard, right? It was, there was some tension there, but it was healthy. And we had to address some points of tension that were um, festering beneath the surface. And sure, I mean, we could have continued on, you know, fulfilling our parental and marital duties taking, you know, cute pictures for the gram and just pretending that everything was okay. And the reality is, while that would have been good for avoiding the tension, it wouldn't have been good for bringing about true peace. See, real peace, positive peace, is not merely the absence of tension, but it is the presence of righteousness and justice. And sometimes in order to achieve that kind of peace, you have to be courageous enough to enter into the tension for a little while. Church, the tension and the disgruntlement in our society surrounding the conversation of race and ethnicity is no different, right? And I get it. There's pressures coming from all sides and angles. And it seems like if you say the wrong thing to the wrong person at any given time, you'll be cut off and separated and ostracized Right. Cancel culture is a real thing. And the conversations are exhausting and the work can be draining. And at times it can feel unrewarding. And even still, we feel like we can't find a home on any side of the conversation. But if you could allow me to encourage you this morning that if that's you, you have found yourself in good company with the Apostle Paul because he too did not find a home on either side of the conversation in his day. 
because the Ephesians wanted him out of their city and the Romans wanted him in prison and the Jews tried to kill him because, brothers and sisters, if we are in Christ, we have no side apart from the kingdom of God. And the only one who we are required to please is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And because his kingdom is not of this earth and his policy is not like the one that is found in the flesh, those who are not operating in the spirit will never understand our means nor our message. The categories don't fit. Paul did not live to please the Jews among him nor the Gentiles, and it is not our obligation to please Democrats or Republicans or left or right or up nor down nor any other division that the world tries to lay upon us, but it is your call to be faithful to the policy of the kingdom to which you've been called. Our fidelity first and foremost is to Christ. It is the only way that we can enter the tension in such a way that we can speak life into it and not be swallowed by it. Now that we've identified the two points of tension, right, that there is a way that we can try to hold on to the control that we perceive we have or we can be afraid of entering the tension. And while none of those will do for bringing about the unity that Christ has secured for us as we turn to our passage, we'll see how Paul offers us a third way through the cross. Look at the text starting at verse 13. He said, but now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace that he might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross and thereby killing the hostility. If you want the, the, the hostility gone, if we want the peace to be present, we must first allow Christ to do something new in our midst. The means by which God is reconciling all things in Christ is the cross. And we have been made ambassadors of God to be ministers of reconciliation until God's goal of creating one new man in himself has been completed. So three points we'll work through and then we'll be on our way. First, the means is the cross. The ministry is reconciliation, and the goal is one new man in Christ. What do I mean the, the means is the cross? Right? Paul makes the policy of the kingdom clear in this passage that there was a time when we were far off. When the determining factors for being included with the people of God were only flesh deep. If you go back a couple verses in the passage in verse 11 and 12, this was the reality under the policy of the flesh. Right? The, the Jews had decided that there were certain rules and regulations that one had to fit under in order to be included in the people of God. But when Christ did away with those things, the only thing that was holding us together was himself. 
And so in verse 13, there is a, a shift from being in the flesh to being found in Christ. And by the blood of his cross, the true policy of the kingdom is revealed. For those who are in Christ, Jesus in his own flesh has destroyed the hostility and he himself is our peace. How? Because in him, all the prior regulations that divided us in the flesh have been abolished so that the only thing holding us together is Christ. Diedrich Bonhoeffer uh, wrote a book called Life Together. If you haven't read it, I recommend it. It's a great read. And he describes this new reality this way. He says, what determines our brotherhood is what that man is by reason of the cross. Our community with one another consists solely in what Christ has done to both of us. This is true not merely at the beginning as though in the course of time something else were to be added to our community, but it remains so for all the future and unto eternity. I have community with others and shall continue to have it only through Jesus Christ. The more genuine and the deeper our community becomes, the more will everything else between us recede and the more clearly and purely will Jesus Christ and his work become the one and only thing that is vital between us. We have one another only through Christ, but through Christ we do have one another holy and for eternity. The cross not only motivates unity and peace, it creates it and it sustains it unto eternity. Whenever we add requirements to the union beyond the cross, we will inevitably alienate others from the body. When we fail to adhere to the policy of the cross, we will settle for earthly acquaintance that is shallow and fragile, but Christ speaks a better word of belonging over us. This is why Paul, though he was despised and rejected by both groups, never lacked in love for neither side. If Paul would have sought to be accepted by the Jews, he would have been pressured into hating the Gentiles because that was their policy. Likewise, if he would have tried to be accepted by the Gentiles, then he would have had to despise the Jews in response and accept their idol worship because that was a part of their policy. But because the means by which Paul sought both groups was the cross, he was empowered and compelled to love despite the hate and to enter into the tension with people around him. He did not succumb to the pressure. Church, the reality is some people are not going to like you because of the message and the ministry that you bring, and that's okay, because like Paul, we have not been commanded to be liked by the people around us, but you've been commanded to love and to stand in the gap for those who cannot stand for themselves. And if you do this through the means of the cross, if that is your means and motivation, then it will not only make the work more sweet and doable, but it'll keep you going when times get hard. That is the the means. So what is the, the ministry? The ministry for us is reconciliation. When I was working on my undergrad, I went to Moody Bible Institute 
and I was seeking a degree in a uh, bachelor's in arts of youth ministry. And in my sophomore year, I got to take um, a fun class on nutrition and fitness. And the coolest part about the class was my professor at the time, or, or previously, had been a trainer for Olympic athletes. And I remember thinking to myself, like, maybe this is where, like, my NBA dreams start to take off. Like, I just get some professional training. She could, like, teach me how to grow five inches. And, you know, I'm sure they got something like that in the Olympics. Um, just turned me into a beast. And but it was a really good class, right? She did kind of walk us through and showed us how to put together a, a fitness plan to, to meet our fitness goals. And we got to get sciency and learn how to make um, energy drinks. And yeah, I learned how to make one that's way better and more healthy for you than Gatorade. So it was great. It was a, it was a good class. Learned a lot. It was super helpful. But the reality is I could have taken any number of classes in place of that one and still graduated with my degree. Right, there was a, a catalog of, of courses that were, would have done the same thing to get me those three credit hours. See, because that course was only an elective. But see, in order for me to receive my bachelor's in arts in youth ministry, if I wanted to graduate from Moody Bible Institute, there was no way for me to get around Old and New Testament survey. If I wanted to get that degree and walk across the stage, there was no way for me to skip by church history or my systematic theology class because those were considered core curriculum. My path to graduation included some peripheral courses, but there were some that I just could not skip. And as my brother Brian Loritz once said, reconciliation is not an elective, it is core curriculum in the gospel. One body of saints living in harmony in Christ Jesus is a precious part of Christ's reward. And who are we to rob him of any of the glory or the portion that is due him for his sacrifice on the cross? Rather, we should be honored that we have been invited and welcomed to partner with him in this work of reconciling all things together in Christ. Paul writes about this more in depth elsewhere in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, starting at verse 16. He reiterates these ideas. He says, from now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away and behold, the new has come. All of this is from God, who through Christ has reconciled us to himself and he has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. So we implore you on behalf of Christ to be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin in order that we might become the righteousness of God. The cross is why unity and ethnic harmony matters. 
Christ gave his life so that the policy of the kingdom will become a reality for us. And so like Paul, we who have been gripped by the love of our Savior are filled with obligation to bring about the unity Christ has already secured through his finished work on the cross. That means that the lens through which we see the world around us changes. There's only two categories to place humanity in with a proper view from the kingdom. There are those who are in Christ and there are those who are not in Christ. And no matter where people find themselves, our our message and our ministry is the same. Reconcile. For those who are outside of Christ and have not yet tasted the beauty and the riches of salvation to be found in him, our message to them is to be reconciled to God, to put your faith and your trust in Jesus so that you could be made new and that you could experience life and life to the full. Likewise, for those who have been regenerated by the Spirit and who have relationship with Christ, our message is reconciled. Be reconciled to your brothers and your sisters in the household of God because Christ has died so that you could experience a union like you couldn't before. It is the way in which we usher one another in completing the greatest commandment. Love God. In order to do that, you must be reconciled to God. Love your neighbor as yourself. In order to do that, you must be reconciled to your neighbor. This is the way in which we obey the commands of our Savior. The ministry is always reconciliation. Last point, we've established that the means and the motivation of the work is the cross and the ministry that has been gifted us through the cross is reconciliation. And lastly, we consider what is the goal, right? Like what are we aiming for as we march forward? How do we know if we're getting closer or moving further away? And Paul gives us the goal in verse 15, he says the reason he's broken down the dividing wall and abolished the law of commandments expressed in ordinances was to create one new man in himself. Not that he would have multiple bodies of saints, but that he would have one body of saints who worship him in spirit and in truth. So you notice the peace that comes as a byproduct in the passage only comes after you've been made new. See, the problem with seeking reconciliation through the world's means is that they will always try to achieve peace without first being made new by the Savior. And that means every single one of us, no matter which angle by which we approach the cross, right, it has something there that that Christ wants to transform in us and make us new in order that we might experience the peace which has been secured for us. Earlier in the illustration, I didn't tell you how Coach Boone got to respond to Gary's pressure, right? Uh, It's one of my favorite parts of the movie. Um, Denzel in like classic Denzel form, right? He just walks up to him with his Denzel swagger and he's like, "Uh, hey, your your folks here? And Gary, you know, he points over to where his parents are and they kind of nod at the coach and he waves back. He says, you know, once once you get on that bus, you don't, you don't have your mom anymore. You got your brothers on the team, and you got your daddy. He said, now, Gary, you know who your dad is, right? Gary's looking at him, and he's like, I know this guy is not talking to me like this in front of my teammates and all. Like, this is not happening. And he's like, if you want to play on this team, 
Come on, Gary. Gary's like, you are, sir. He's like, all right, get on the bus. Right? Gary wanted to play football. So he humbled himself. He took the sting and he got on the bus. And that's not the coolest part, right? What happens when he goes off to training camp is he doesn't just learn the new playbook. and He doesn't just learn some new strategies, but something changes in Gary's perspective of the world. He becomes a part of this new team that functions under a new policy and new leadership. And when he comes back into his community, the things that he left behind just didn't feel the same way that they did before. The way that his parents looked at his new teammates of color just didn't sit with him the same way it did before he left. The way his girlfriend would speak about his new friends and teammates on the squad just didn't sit with him the same way it did before. He couldn't let the comments slide because, you see, he had went and submitted himself under a new policy. And his principles had started to align with the policy that had been put in place long ago. And all of a sudden, the new wine that he tasted when he was at camp just didn't fit in the old wineskins anymore. But Gary wasn't the only one who got on the bus for training camp. There are many others as well, namely his roommate Julius, who had come from one of the all-black schools. And he too came to the bus And there were some things that he brought with him, just like Gary. And though they came from different walks of life and had different baggage that they brought to the bus, they both submitted themselves to the same leadership and to the same policy. And just like Gary, when he went off to camp, by the time he came back, there were things and categories that he had for life that just didn't fit anymore because the new wine that he had tasted when he went away for camp just didn't fit back in the old wineskins. And for the first time in both of these teenage boys' lives, they were able to experience true peace. And not only that, but they became pillars of peace in the community around them. Church, I don't know which angle you come today approaching the cross, but no matter what you've brought with you, the kingdom has something new in store for you. And if you would submit yourself to the policy of the kingdom you'll find that the old wineskins that we had before are not fitting for the new wine that is offered at the cross. For some of us, maybe like Gary, we come to the bus with luggage, luggage full of privilege, and Christ knows what to do with that sort of luggage. He has demonstrated it for us in his life and on the cross. Jesus, the only one who is truly supreme, stepped down from glory and humbled himself like a man. The Bible says that though he was God, he did not consider equality with God as a thing to be grasped, but rather he humbled himself. He took on flesh. Remember one time his disciples were arguing about who would sit next to him in glory, and he said, stop arguing and fighting for power like those in the world around you do, but rather in my kingdom the greatest among you will be the servants of all. And then in an ultimate display of humility, the God of the universe of creation who formed mankind out of the dust, submitted himself to death at the hands of those whom he created. He stood in the gap for the outcasts so that we might have life. And he extends the invitation 
to you to come to the cross and to lay down your luggage so that the kingdom and the new policy might make you new. And then there are some of us who, like Julius, come to the, to the cross with a different kind of luggage, one that might be full of pain, the pain of being cast out, marginalized because of where you're from or how you look or any number of things. And I just want to encourage you this morning that Christ knows what to do with that kind of luggage as well. He doesn't just know what to do with the pain, but he is acquainted with our grief. That before he left his mother's womb, he was a object of systemic oppression. The powers at B had demanded that the, that the children that were being born, the male children, be eliminated just so that they could get him in the process. He grew up in the city of Nazareth where they told him that nothing good could come out of. He was poor. He was rejected by the powers at B and also by those in his own community. And yet he gave his life to stand in the gap for the marginalized that were around him. And all the while he was slandered for it. And before long, he would suffer one of the most notorious and unjust deaths ever recorded in human history. Jesus, the son of suffering himself, would be hanged on a tree and mocked. And while he suffered humanity's worst, while they did their very best to crush his physical body, they were unable to taint the pureness of his heart. Right? With all humility and with grace, he lay there stretched on the cross and without scorning, but rather in patience and with love, he cried out to his father, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. He extends an invitation to us to come to the cross and to lay down the luggage so that you may be made new. Church, Christ wants to do a new thing in his people. And after we have been made new, he wants to entrust to us the same mission that was entrusted to Denzel, right, for us to be able to be partners in the community to bring about the unity he died for. It's your lucky day to be Denzel for the sake of Christ. So where do we, where do we go from here? If I may just leave you with an exhortation from uh, personal experience and conviction. And over the past several years, I've been able to engage in conversation like these in various Christian circles, both at um, Christian colleges and um, K through 12 schools and even in the local church. And what I know to be true is engaging in this kind of conversation and in this work is really hard. And it feels oftentimes like it's impossible to accomplish but the hope has always been to bring about the kind of unity that our Savior has died for. That's why it's worth it. And the, the, the invitation and the hope today is the same thing, that we would join forces with our Savior and that we will partner with him in bringing about the unity that has already been secured by the policy passed on the cross. My wife and I, before we landed here several years ago, um, our mentors had went off to Virginia to, with a plan to plant a multi-ethnic church, and we were 
divided on whether we should go with them or to stay. And God in his wisdom called us to stay. And we knew that wherever we were, we wanted to be a part of the work of helping God bring together all people in Christ. This is what that didn't mean. What that didn't mean was that we had all the answers of how you could shoot a silver bullet and just stop all of the problems that we've seen in our culture, right? We didn't, didn't have that, still don't. Um, it also didn't mean that we weren't afraid of what might lie ahead, that we weren't um, unsure about how the path would be to move towards that goal alongside God. And it didn't mean that we didn't come to the table ourselves with luggage that Christ would call us to lay down so that we could be made new from the inside out. But what that meant was that we were committing to cling to the cross for dear life and that regardless of the tension that might come, that we would do whatever we could to enter into that tension for the sake of the gospel by the means of the cross. And what we found in roughly five years of being a part of this local body is that it is far sweeter and far more beautiful to live under the policy of the kingdom, trusting Christ all along the way than to submit ourselves to the policy of the world. And church, God is inviting all of us to be faithful and intentional and loving, but to enter the tension with one another so that we could create that unified body that he has died for. It starts in our home groups, in our Bible classes, in our neighborhoods, in our families, at our workplace, and not just when cultural cues would incite the conversation that would be to wait on the world, but there is a time now for the church to take the lead and to demonstrate what true unity and peace looks like under the policy of the kingdom. And we can do it knowing that his wounds have already paid the ransom, that his blood has already secured the victory, that we are not fighting a lost cause, but one that will be realized despite the pressures that we see today. And that the payment that Christ has paid with his blood has purchased for himself a new people united in one body for the glory of our God. Join me in prayer. Father, would you do a new thing? God, we, we are begging and asking you to do a new thing. We're tired of the old wine and the old wineskins. Lord God, would you bring a fresh, would you pour out your spirit afresh on us? Lord, give us eyes to see like you see. Lord God, give us hearts that love and are burdened for the things that you're burdened for. Lord God, would you expand our imagination of what neighbor means? Lord God, that we will be intentional about entering into the spaces, into the lives of those you've placed around us for the sake of your gospel. Lord God, this is only made possible through you. It is only made possible through the blood of your cross. And so we say thank you and worthy are you above all else. For you are the one who have broken down the hostility in your own body. You are deserving of all of the honor and the glory and all of the prize that are due you for your work. Lord, we love you. Fill us, compel us, be with us. 
It's in your son Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.